My name is Arif Katra, and I'm the host of Voices Worth Listening To. This is a podcast dedicated to sharing stories about diversity, stories that I hope will make you think and reflect on how we experience each other's differences. My goal is to encourage change in our individual perspectives and in the ways in which we live and work together. This is the first of a two-part series on women and diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Full disclosure, it took me many different experiences over the course of a lifetime to fully appreciate the challenges women face at work. Not because I didn't believe what I was seeing, but because when I traded off my personal need for professional advancement with the plight of my female colleagues, I took an empathetic role that made me a confidant to many, but a champion for few. My intent in this episode is to share my journey through a set of compelling real-life stories. The First Awakening I think my first introduction to women facing diversity and inclusion challenges in the workplace was with my mom. See, my mom was a very active member of our faith community. She still is. She has an unbelievable knack for personal relationships and unselfish problem solving. A set of characteristics, I think, really afforded my mom many opportunities for leadership within our own community. But in her professional life, by and large, my mom struggled to lead. She worked for the government of Canada, and over 30 years, despite sitting for 20 to 25 different competitions for potential promotions, she rarely got promoted. My father, on the other hand, who didn't want to be a leader, who distrusted their very nature, was offered far more leadership positions not only in our community, but also in his professional life. But I witnessed most of this as a teenager, when I didn't really have the wherewithal to put two and two together. But when I did, I realized how powerful implicit bias is against women. What I want to say is that after this important awakening, I became a champion for women at work. I didn't. I felt bad about what happened to my mom and hoped that I wouldn't suffer the same fate as a man of color. If I could speak to that younger me today, I would say something like, Arif, selfish, passive empathy is just not okay. The second awakening. Many of you may not know that maternity leave in Canada was legalized in 1921, and it took about 50 years for it to begin to look like it does today. The challenge facing women around maternity leave is not the principle that mothers need time away from work, but rather an if, when, 
and how it gets implemented. The story I want to share with you takes place when maternity leave is common, accepted, and built into the HR structures of all organizations in Canada. When I was a doctoral student, a few of my fellow female students were working on petitioning the university to recognize the right of doctoral students to take maternity leave. I was confused. This was Canada. If you have a baby, you get maternity leave, plain and simple. But it was anything but plain and simple. See, there are limits to how long you have to complete your PhD. Some doctoral supervisors depend significantly on their students for publications. When a female student has a baby, it throws a wrench into the system. Of course, the university had no choice but to grant maternity leave. It was the law. But it did little to ensure that the women who went on maternity leave would be treated as institutional assets versus institutional liabilities. Doctoral programs are not like other degrees. They depend on an intellectual intimacy with your faculty. They depend on you being accepted as an important addition to academia. And that requires deep relationships. When you are perceived as a liability because you are pregnant or because you can get pregnant, the impact is life-changing. But university leadership didn't think about that. As I saw this roll out in front of my eyes, I asked myself, why? Female doctoral students make up almost half of all doctoral students. More women than men have degrees in Canada. Leadership is part of the answer. See, the Canadian university system is run by men. Today, in 2020, forget about 20 years ago, only 15% of university presidents are women. So what did I do when I saw my friends lose their status because they got pregnant? Nothing. I didn't know what to do. The Third Awakening A good friend of mine, let's call her Leslie, was starting her PhD and very early on began working on a paper with a faculty member. The paper was Leslie's idea. She had done all the research and even had a draft. She wanted the faculty member's guidance to turn this paper into something that would likely publish. After all, this was her first academic article. The faculty member, who was a woman, and a highly published author, was really only able to give Leslie a limited amount of time. But Leslie was very appreciative. And for that, she put the faculty member's name on the paper as a second author. When Leslie's paper was ready to go out for review, the faculty member said to her, let me write to the editor. I know them, and it will help us get a good set of reviewers. Leslie was on board, and within months, 
the paper was conditionally accepted at a very prestigious journal. When the editors sent their questions, the faculty member forwarded them to Leslie, asking for responses. Leslie was so excited, opened the attachment, and saw a mock-up of her first published paper. But Leslie also saw that she was no longer the first author. She was confused. Was this an error? She asked the faculty member about the authorship. The conversation did not go well. With Leslie saying, you did this behind my back. The response, no one will believe you, Leslie. Do you think anyone is going to believe a female doctoral student? I've been there. Not happening. Leslie was devastated. She left the program. Leslie did not finish her PhD. What did I do? I empathize with Leslie. I told people, and sure enough, no one believed me either. You might be thinking, this is not about Leslie being a woman. This is about power. Faculty have power over their students, especially in a doctoral program where the learning is so relationship-based. Although I'd be willing to entertain that hypothesis, I have another example that occurred around the same time between two doctoral students, so no power differential. The Fourth Awakening A friend, let's call her Sam, was working on a paper to develop a model around how senior managers make technology investment decisions. It was cutting-edge stuff. Sam's work was compelling, not only from an academic perspective, but it was practically relevant to the tune of billions of dollars a year. Sam was working on developing this model as part of a class she was taking. Let me give you a little context. PhD classes are tiny. They're nothing like the classes we're used to during undergrad or during our master's degrees. PhD classes have about three to six people in them, and they are long discussions based on hundreds of pages of readings that you do every week. The final submission is always a paper, usually worth close to 100% of your grade, that your professor expects you will develop into a publication. Sharing your paper and getting feedback from other students in your class is very common because that's how academia works. Sam did exactly that. She asked a male colleague to look at her paper and provide feedback. Let's call him Mark. Mark provided Sam with a few insights and Sam was grateful. Sam, Mark, and the other students submitted their papers. A few weeks later, the faculty member calls Mark and Sam into a meeting. The issue? Plagiarism. Sam and Mark, according to the faculty member, presented a very similar paper on a model designed to explain how technology decisions are made. 
Mark stole Sam's work. Sam presented the faculty member with all of her research, notes, and previous drafts of the paper. She asked the faculty member to ask the same of Mark. She was confident that would clear up the charge of plagiarism. That is exactly what should have happened. But that is exactly what didn't happen. The faculty member and his male colleagues looked away. They said it must have been a mistake. Mark couldn't have done this on purpose. There was so much perverse compassion and understanding for Mark, but absolutely no recognition of Sam's voice. My reaction? Shock and fear. Shock because we all watched a robbery happen in plain sight and the authorities did nothing. Fear because those in power told us we didn't see what we saw. The fifth and final awakening. It's Sunday afternoon, and I'm sitting in my house, looking out at the view from my window. I remember it being overcast. I had just had a great week of teaching, but it was intense. So Sunday was reserved for lazing around. As I get up to have a cup of tea, my doorbell rings. I go to the front door, and who's there? Jennifer, a student who graduated a year ago. I open the door, and before I can say anything, Jennifer says, I'm sorry to bother you, but can I come in? I really need to talk to you about something. I invite her in, not completely sure how she got my address, but I could sense something was wrong. She apologized again and said, Arif, you are the only one I feel I can talk to. Jennifer, don't you live in New York? I do. I just flew in yesterday. Visiting your folks in Toronto? No, I came to speak to you. You came here from New York just to speak to me? You're scaring me, Jennifer. What's going on? My strategy classes are tough. And she stood out. She was bright, committed, a go-getter, and a fighter. And she wasn't just a smart undergrad. She was one of the brightest people I had ever come across. I can't do it anymore. I thought investment banking was about meritocracy. If you work your ass off and you do it smartly, then you belong. I've been working at the bank for a year, and still I feel like an outsider. Now, I understand that as a first-year associate, my job is to do the work that no one else wants to do. And I do it. I never complain, and I ask for more. I am the first one in the office and the last one to leave. Your boss must see that. I have two bosses, my manager and the managing director. They both see it. The managing director is very supportive. But my manager, he sees me as less. He never includes me on interesting projects. 
I get left I get left out of meetings. And RF, you know that investment banking is a work hard, play hard environment. And I don't get invited to the party. They go out to eat, they go out to bars, they don't invite me. But when they go to strip clubs, they do invite me. They belittle me in the open. There are days that I'm afraid to go to work because I'm afraid of what they'll say next. Have you spoken to anyone in HR? HR is a joke in investment banking. It's more about avoiding lawsuits than it is about creating an environment of support. Hmm. Why don't you just leave and do something else? I love the work. Do, do you think I have to quit? I didn't know the answer to that question. Why was this happening, I thought? How can the managing director be supportive of Jennifer and yet allow this environment to exist? Quitting. I guess that's the question I'm asking. Whether you should quit. Yes. Being an investment banker is my dream. And Arv, I'm really good at it. And you have always believed in me. And yet here I am thinking about quitting. I want to know what you think. But first, I need to share one more piece of information. Okay, what is it? You know how first-year associates, especially females, are often paraded out by the banks to help recruit other first-year associates at business schools? You know, to give them the impression that they're inclusive? Yes, the irony is not lost on me. And I want to warn you, what Jennifer is about to say is very disturbing. Well, I went to a number of business schools this year and helped the bank with recruitment. We met with some amazing young people and through different rounds of interviews, which included the managing director, we whittled it down to two candidates, one woman and one man. That's good, right? They both came to the office and spent some time with the team. How'd it go? Well, great. But when the female candidate left and we began sharing comments in the WhatsApp group about their qualifications and fit, my manager wrote, what I want to know from all of you is, how fuckable is she? What? Yeah, you heard that right. And Jennifer fell to tears right there in my living room, broken. She showed me the message because I must have been beside myself in disbelief. Jennifer was 23 years old. This didn't happen to my mom. This happened in the recent past. Those tears took me from being awoken to being woke. I helped Jennifer with a little advice on how to get out of this mess of an institution in a way that she could still feel proud. She left, and success unleashed for Jennifer. But even today, the voice you heard wasn't hers. Why? Weakness? No. Fear? No. The answer is reality. Jennifer continues to work in a male-dominated context, where there is little actual interest in the challenges women face in the workplace when it comes to diversity and inclusion. 
Anyone who questions these challenges just hasn't spent enough time with women to understand their stories. So what can you do? I only have one recommendation. Take a female colleague out for lunch. Make it a Zoom lunch. And use Uber Eats to order food to the both of you. And then ask your colleague for her stories. If they trust you, they will tell you their stories. I don't know any female colleague that doesn't have at least a few. What if no one shares a story? Well, then you just learned something very important about yourself and the role you might be playing in the diversity and inclusion of women in the workplace. I hope you'll join me again in a few weeks by subscribing to the podcast. And I especially hope that today, the time spent listening to this podcast made you feel that this was a voice worth listening to. If you would like more information about my work in diversity and strategy, please visit my website at www.strat-ology.com. That's S-T-R-A-T-O-L-O-G-Y dot com. The music in this podcast is from the Toronto Tabla Ensemble. To find out more, visit torontotabla.com. That's the word Toronto and the word tabla, T-A-B-L-A dot com. Thank you.